Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we're studying the Eightfold Path in three individual sections. Last week, we covered the Wisdom section where we dove into Right View and Right Intention. This week, we're covering the Moral Conduct section where we're going to be discussing Right Speech, Right Action, and Right Livelihood. And then next week, we're going to be doing the Mental Discipline section where we're going to be covering Right Effort, Right Mindfulness, and Right Concentration. Concentration. So I'd like to welcome all of you because this type of class we can dive into detail about this individual section of the Eightfold Path. It's the Eightfold Path that is the path to enlightenment. This is the life practice. So anybody who's interested in getting to enlightenment based on the teachings of the Buddha would need to ultimately understand the Eightfold Path inside and out, backwards and forwards. And this is what you would end up spending a lot of time to understand. This is the core central teaching of the Buddha with everything else plugging into it. So right here at the very beginning of our group learning program, I'm spending three individual classes to go into detail about the Eightfold Path, and then we'll be covering it in other times during the program as well as part of chapter five, and then other things that we're gonna be discussing in this program is gonna be plugging into this. But right here at the beginning of the program, you're getting a very good understanding of what the Path to Enlightenment is through the Eightfold Path. As we go, just like with all of our classes, you're welcome to ask questions. We're normally streaming to a lot of different places, but today we're only streaming to YouTube and we're recording this for our podcast, but we also have people in Zoom as well. So if you're in YouTube, you're welcome to put your questions into the comment section. If you're in Zoom, you can put your comments there as well. But also in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So let me go ahead and share some visual aids to help us here so that you can see what it is that I'm discussing as part of the class. So firstly, let's just look at and let me remind you about the steps that we talked about last week, which is right view and right intention. This is part of the wisdom section of the Eightfold Path. With right view, we explored the three universal truths, the four noble truths. This is where you learned what is the problem, which is discontentedness, those conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And you also learned that craving, desire, attachment is the cause of discontentedness. This is where the mind is basing its inner feelings on some condition. That if it's sunny outside, okay, you're happy, you're excited. But if it's raining outside, maybe you're sad. But this is just the mind longing and yearning, wanting things to be a certain way, not understanding the universal truth of impermanence, that it's not possible for it to be permanently sunny. And if we attach our inner feelings to 
the weather, for example, or any other impermanent condition, then the mind's going to be going up and down and up and down and up and down. But instead, you can get to a point where you see that it's sunny outside. You're already joyful before you ever saw it was sunny outside. And then if it's raining and you need to change your plans, you understand that and you're perfectly comfortable with that. And it's the craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing and strong eagerness, wanting the world to be a certain way, that as long as the mind has those longing and yearnings, then when it gets what it wants, it's going to experience these conditioned, pleasant feelings. But those are only impermanent, so it's going to switch to these painful feelings. And I was using the analogy or the example of the weather. If we base our inner feelings of what's going on with the weather, then the weather is not permanent. So if it's sunny outside and we get happy, and if it rains outside, we get sad then you know it just is a matter of the change of the weather and your feelings are going up and down and up and down and up and down and what you're looking to cultivate and train your mind is to not base your inner feelings on the things that are happening around you because as long as the mind's doing that there's going to be discontentedness because the things that you experience in life are not permanent so if you base your inner feelings on if it's sunny outside you're happy and if it's raining outside you're sad then your mind's just going to go up and down and up and down but instead what you can get to is that if it's sunny outside the mind is already joyful before you even see the sun but now you see the sun it's like all right there's joy already in the mind not because of the sun but the joy is already there. But then if it starts raining and you need to change your plans, for example, then the mind can understand that this is just impermanence. I can change the plans that I had. I'm not going to be able to go on my hiking trip because it's pouring down raining, but instead maybe I can go to a movie or I can go to the mall or I can just stay home and read a book or something like this. And the mind can be comfortable with impermanence when there's not craving desire attachment. When there's craving desire attachment, the unenlightened mind can only be happy when it gets what it wants. This is like a two-year-old kid, a three-year-old kid. You know, you give me the chocolate and I'll be happy, mom. Or you give me the chocolate, I'll be happy, dad. But if I don't get it, I'm going to throw a temper tantrum. I'm going to get angry and frustrated. That's what the unenlightened mind is essentially doing is that if you give me what I want, which is the craving desire attachments, then I'm going to get these pleasant feelings. But if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to get these painful feelings with maybe anger, hostility. And there may even be some unskillful conduct with that where I become bitter and harsh and aggressive when the mind isn't getting what it once. So having right view and understanding that your mind is causing its own anger, its sadness, its frustration, and all these other discontent feelings, this is vitally important because if you had wrong view, what you would most likely be doing is blaming your inner feelings on somebody else or the situation. You're making me angry or you're annoying me or you are irritating me. And then when we blame other people, then we're not really focused on the real problem. And we tend to either push those people out of our life, which is called aversion, because we think that they're the ones who are causing our disconsent feelings, or we'll, we will become so bitter and harsh and aggressive in our 
moral conduct that then these people choose to leave our life because we are falsely attributing the painful feelings that you're experiencing in the unenlightened state to this person or this situation and now your moral conduct can become very unskillful and harsh and aggressive towards others so when you have wrong view you might experience difficulties in relationships where with your parents or your siblings or your coworkers, your life partner, your children, you might have difficulties if you and or them have wrong view because people are gonna be going around blaming each other for the feelings that they're experiencing. When in reality, any of feelings that you're experiencing, you're causing it yourself. That's the craving desire attachment. And then you eliminate craving desire attachment as part of this path. And it's the eightfold path being learned and practiced that you gradually train the mind to understand the true reality of these natural laws of existence and how to train your mind to gradually diminish discontentedness until it's completely eliminated. So right view would be accepting responsibility for the challenges, the difficulties, the struggles, the feelings, anything that's happening in your life, it's based on a decision that you're making. That would be right view. Wrong view would be to blame others for the things that you're experiencing in life. And it can be really hard sometimes to look at your mind and accept that yes, everything that you're experiencing in life is based on the decisions that you're making. You might really struggle with this if the mind really truly believes that other people are causing your inner feelings. So this is where you need to do the reflection and independently verify for yourself and see the truth that over the course of your life, as you are experiencing discontentedness, there were certain things that the mind wanted that it just didn't get. And then that's when it got shaken up with this anger and hostility and aggression and other discontent feelings. So when you are able to look at your mind objectively and you're able to see the truth and the reality that yes, you are causing your discontent feelings and you accept responsibilities for this, this can be very liberating because you don't need to go out and train 8 billion people to do things your way. Instead, you just train your mind. You just need to train one person. And by establishing right view, not only do you realize that your own mind needs the training, but then you start realizing that if there's anything in your life that you're not pleased about, you can just make a different decision and change that situation. So if you have a job that you don't like and you feel miserable in this job, well, it's your decision to continue to work there. And maybe you're attached to the paycheck or the, the title. Maybe the ego really likes this title. Or maybe you're attached to the coworkers or it's an easy drive to work or whatever it is. But if those things are holding you to this job that you don't like and you're feeling miserable about going to the job every day, this is a result of your decisions. You can just change your decisions and get a different job. But when the mind is holding on and clinging to certain things, it's going to struggle to be able to do that. Or if you're having relationships that you feel like you would rather not be in those relationships, you can change your decisions about those relationships or any other aspect of your life. If you don't like where you live and maybe uh, you feel like people play loud music all hours of night, 2 a.m. in the morning, 3 a.m. in the morning, and you 
don't like the fact that you get woken up regularly because of that. You can change that decision of where you live. And now, because you realize everything that you experience as a result of your decisions, by taking ownership over your life and your decision-making process and gaining wisdom, now you can make wiser decisions and create a better and better life for yourself. But creating this better life or this life practice doesn't involve training other people to do things your way. As soon as you're interested in doing that, that's wrong view. And now if you're blaming other people for the things that you experience, then you're going to keep experiencing those struggles because you're not fixing the true problem. That's why whenever you've had a problem in a relationship and you've pushed these people out of your life, you still get angry because it wasn't those people that were causing you to be angry. It was the cravings in your own mind. So you need to be able to take ownership over that and establish right view more and more. And where you're having trouble with that, that's where you reach out asking questions and letting me know, talking in personal guidance sessions or sending a private message or posting in the Facebook group, and then I'll help you there. Then we talked about right view, which has three aspects to right view. There's intention of renunciation, intention of non-ill will, and the intention of harmlessness. The intention of renunciation is to have the thinking or the thought that you're willing to let things go. Because if you hold on to things very tightly in the mind, then you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment. What you need to understand is that if you experience discontentedness, like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, even the slightest displeasure or uncomfortableness in the mind. This is discontentedness and you haven't attained what's called final knowledge. What final knowledge is, is when you fully understand the path to enlightenment and you fully have trained your mind, you will acquire final knowledge that you understand the path and you're practicing it. And now the mind has been fully transformed where there's no discontentedness in the mind whatsoever. One of the major things that is keeping the mind in the unenlightened state that we're going to talk about in future chapters is something called ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. The mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. So if you're experiencing discontentedness, the mind is holding on to some kind of false beliefs, some kind of misunderstandings, some misconceptions or misperceptions about the world. And therefore, the mind hasn't attained final knowledge and the wisdom of how to be trained to get to this enlightened mental state where the mind is in this higher consciousness. So if you are practicing the intention of renunciation, then you understand that, yeah, there's certain false beliefs and opinions and views that you have that you're going to need to let go of and be willing to let those go. And you're going to be needing to bring in new wisdom into the mind. Because as long as the mind is holding on to its false beliefs, false opinions, and false views, then it can't get this new wisdom to train the mind to eliminate this ignorance or unknowing of true reality. So this right intention is essentially having an open mind and understanding that, yeah, you need to learn, you need to reflect, independently verify the teachings, and then you need to practice in order to transform the mind. One of the major false beliefs or misperceptions that the mind needs to let go of is discussed as part of right view. Because if the mind has the view that other people are causing you to be angry and you continue to believe that, 
then you'll never be able to make progress to eliminate discontentedness. You're going to need to get to the point where you've established right view and you deeply understand that any discontent feelings that you experience is a result of craving, desire, attachment in your own mind. Your own mind is producing this. So if you have the intention of renunciation, then you're willing to learn, you're willing to reflect, to independently verify something like the Four Noble Truths. You're willing to practice in order to train the mind and let go of these false beliefs and false opinions. And then the other parts of right intention are the intention of non-ill will, which non-ill will is goodwill. And goodwill is loving kindness or this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, this active goodwill. And then the intention of harmlessness is being incapable or uninterested in causing harm to other beings. Because as long as you're causing harm to others, harm is going to come to you. And this is a great segue into the moral conduct, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Because as long as you're causing harm through your moral conduct of your speech or actions in your livelihood, then that harm is going to be coming back to you. It's not going to be possible for you to get to a peaceful and joyful mind if you don't have the intention of harmlessness, where you're uninterested and incapable of causing harm to others. And it's the moral conduct that's going to help you see the harms that you're maybe causing and how to clean that up so that you're no longer causing that harm to others through your moral conduct. Now, as you learn the moral conduct of the Eightfold Path, it's important to understand the natural law of gamma. You might have heard this referred to as karma. This is just another language. This is Sanskrit. The original source teachings of the Buddha are in the Pali language, so we use this word gamma. Now, the vast majority of everything I teach is in the English language. There's only maybe one or two, maybe three words that I still need to use the Pali word because there isn't a one word translation. And gamma is one of those words that there's not a one word translation to explain what it is. So I still need to use that word, but everything else I use English. What the natural law of gamma is, is it's cause and effect or action and result essentially the results of your decisions. Sometimes people think of gamma as punishment and rewards. That's not what it is. Or some people think that it's this mystical, magical thing, or this black cloud that's following you around, or maybe like a bank account that you're making positive deposits into, and then when you do something unwise, you can take a withdrawal out of this bank account. But that's not what the natural law of gamma is. It's just cause and effect or action and result. The fact that you're listening to this right now or that you're in this class, it's just gamma. It's cause and effect. At some point, either a friend recommended you or you might have saw a, a post somewhere or a link or maybe you made the choice to go out and search for classes to learn these teachings. And that was the cause. And the effect is that you've decided to now show up. And then now that you're learning, maybe the first time you learn, maybe you felt like, oh, this teacher seems like they might know the teachings of the Buddha. Maybe they're polite. Maybe you thought about me as being kind or friendly or respectful. And you're like, okay, this is someone I could learn from. So there's a cause and their effect. There's a result of your decisions. The reason why people are interested in learning the teachings with the teacher is maybe they feel that this person is knowledgeable and they conduct themselves in a polite, kind, friendly, respectful way. So the results of my decisions are that, yes, students are interested to learn with me because maybe I share things freely. I 
don't have any expectations of students. I allow people to come and go as they please. It's your decisions of when you show up and when you don't show up and things like this. So we're experiencing the results of our decisions in everything that we do in life. If you've got a life partner or you've got children or you have a job that you make certain money or wherever you live, these are all the results of your decisions. Your life is an accumulation of your results of your decisions. There's been cause and effect and cause and effect and cause and effect. Just the fact that you can understand what I'm speaking right now, this is cause and effect. At some point in your life, you were just an infant and you had no idea what the English language was and you couldn't comprehend it. But slowly but surely, you made decisions to go to school, to listen to your teachers, to do assignments, to do homework, to learn how to read, to learn how to write, to learn how to speak, refine your language ability. And now you're at the point where you can listen to me and you can understand what it is that I'm saying. This is the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect or action and result, the results of your decisions. Essentially, it's your life, your decisions, and your results. And everything that you experience in life is as a result of your decisions. So as it relates to the Eightfold Path and the moral conduct, if we make unwise decisions about our speech, our actions, and our livelihood, and we're causing harm in the world, then that harm is going to come back to us because we're making unwise decisions. But conversely, if we're making wise decisions about how we choose to conduct ourselves in life, then it's going to produce wholesome outcomes. And because of this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality, we aren't born with an understanding of the natural law of gamma. It's just like we weren't born with an understanding of the natural law of gravity. We needed to gradually learn how to interact with this natural law of gravity and learning how to roller skate and skateboard and ride our bike, walk down the street, tie our shoes, put things in a certain place. Slowly but surely, we awaken to the wisdom of the natural law of gravity. And now we make wiser choices about how we choose to conduct ourselves related to this natural law of gravity. And now we experience better results than when we were three years old, four years old, five years old. We oftentimes fell down, hit our elbow, hit our knee. You know, we had certain mishaps like that because we lacked the wisdom of the natural law of gravity. Well, the same thing is happening. If you experience any kind of struggles in life with discontentedness or relationships or your job performance or anything like this, it's just because you don't have the wisdom of this natural law of gamma. The mind is struggling. Just like you struggled with the natural law of gravity, your mind is struggling with this natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, because it doesn't see it clearly. So what a Buddha does is a Buddha deeply understands this natural law of gamma, of cause cause and effect, and then they explain it for people so that they can understand it. And then when you understand, you don't believe it, you learn it, you reflect on it to independently verify it, and then you practice and see the truth for yourself that this is working. So sometimes when people study things like moral conduct and traditions like this, they might think of it, depending on how they've been exposed to these things in the past, as rules or commandments or thou shalt do this. But that's not how the Buddha spoke and that's not how he presented his teachings around moral conduct. Instead, he's basically pulling back the covers so you can see more and more clearly this natural law of gamma. And the more that you understand this natural law of gamma and he exposes it for you, you learn it, 
you reflect on it and independently verify it, which I'm going to help you to do today in class. And then you start practicing his teachings and you see that it works because your personal professional relationships will blossom. You'll have much more success in your personal professional relationships and your mind will become more and more calm, more and more peaceful, more and more joyful, because now you're functioning in the world with the wisdom of this natural law of gamma. As long as you don't understand the natural law of gamma around right speech, right action, and right livelihood, then you're going to be making unwise decisions. So your speech, actions, and livelihood is based on right view and right intention, that you understand that, okay, I'm the one who needs to do the work here. Other people need to choose to do the work for themselves. But if you have right view, then you know that, okay, I need to learn how to do the work. And then if you have right intention, that intention of renunciation where you're willing to let go of your maybe unwholesomeness that you're doing related to your moral conduct, you have this intention of goodwill or this interest in seeing all beings be well, and you have this intention of harmlessness where you're disinterested in causing harm to other beings. So now you'll work more actively to ensure that you're producing more wise decisions around your moral conduct. And as you learn these teachings, and now you are functioning in a way where your moral conduct is based on the wisdom of the natural law of gamma, you will see the results for yourself that it truly works. So I'm going to be guiding you through understanding these three steps today of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. We're going to be using the words of the Buddha I'm going to teach it to you so you can learn. I'll help you start reflecting on it. And then your responsibility, if you choose, is to go out and start practicing it. And that's where you really see the truth for yourself, that these teachings are working, that your relationships improve, and then your mind starts being transformed gradually as you start functioning more and more as this better human being who's basing your decisions around your moral conduct based on this natural law of gamma. But it's important that you don't think of this as rules or commandments or anything like that. It's the Buddha helping you to see if you would like to learn this better way of life and how to have more harmonious relationships, then he's helping you to see how to do that. And if you choose not to do that, then that's your choice. You will have certain decisions that you'll make in the world. You'll continue to have certain struggles. But if you choose to learn and practice this, you'll see the truth for yourself that it absolutely works. He doesn't tell you exactly what to do, but he gives you this guidance. That's the way you should think of the moral conduct. He's providing you this guidance. Your personality, your character, the way you choose to interact in the world, it's your choice. But when you have this baseline guidance, this foundational understanding around moral conduct, you'll make better decisions through your own personality and your own character about how to function in the world through this basic guidance that he provides you with real clarity. So I see that we have a hand up. I would like to just pause here before we go into talking about right speech and see if you guys have any questions on anything that I've shared so far. You can put that into YouTube or to Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Yes, thank you, Teacher David. Um, looks like Tonka has a question. Thank you, Christy. We do have a question on YouTube. Bhavani is asking, what is meant by neutral feelings? How to know neutral feelings? 
How will neutral feelings affect the mind? So some people translate the neither painful nor pleasant feelings as neutral feelings. Some people call it positive feelings, negative feelings, and neutral feelings. I don't use those translations. I use pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. So what a neither painful nor pleasant feeling is, is if you've ever been on a public transportation and somebody is set really close to you and your bodies were touching, You weren't feeling pleasure when that was happening, but you weren't feeling pain when that was happening. It was neither painful nor pleasant. The mind was uncomfortable or dissatisfied. That's what that neither painful nor pleasant feeling is. The neutral feeling doesn't really describe what the Buddha talks about in his teachings about discontentedness. Some people use the word suffering. You can go back and look at last week's class, or there's even a mini lesson where I talk about the universal truth of discontentedness contentedness and you can see how I explain it as pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. These are the more accurate translations that I feel are best to use and you'll be able to come to a full understanding of what that universal truth is all about. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. And Max has a question on Zoom. He asks, how long does it take for our gamma to be cleared out? Is it immediate or may it even follow us into our next rebirth? Gamma that you create, it's either going to be experienced in this life, the next life, or some subsequent occasion in the future. But what the path to enlightenment is about, it's about extinguishing your unwholesome gamma in this life so that you can get to enlightenment. As long as you keep functioning with unwholesome moral conduct, for example, related to today's class, you're going to be putting harm in the world and that harm is going to come back to you. So by clearing up your moral conduct, you're making wise decisions, only producing wholesome karma. And now you're extinguishing your unwholesome karma so that now you can actually get to enlightenment. If there's unwholesome karma that you haven't extinguished yet, then there's going to be rebirth and you'll experience the results in this life, the next life, or some future life. So the Eightfold Path is the path to extinguishing all unwholesome karma. Thank you, sir. I believe that's all the questions we have right now. Okay, so let's move into discussing right speech. And we're going to use the words of the Buddha so that you guys can see exactly what he taught and what he didn't teach. Because it's so important that we look exactly at what a Buddha taught because he's the discoverer, the declarer, the originator of the path to enlightenment. Any changes that happened after his life, it doesn't lead to enlightenment. It's only what a Buddha teaches that leads to enlightenment. He's the discoverer, the declarer, the originator of the path. So getting back to his words and what he originally taught is what's actually going to lead you to enlightenment. And then you don't believe those teachings. You learn, reflect, and practice. So here's what he said as part of right speech in the Eightfold Path, this core central teaching. He says, in what monks is right speech? Refraining from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech. This is called right speech. 
So here he's giving you four aspects of right speech, and he's teaching to a certain level of detail. Because in the Eightfold Path, he teaches to a certain level of detail, and then he goes deeper and deeper and deeper into this and other teachings that plug into the Eightfold Path. Like what we explored last week with right view, he just pointed to the Four Noble Truths, and then you go explore the Four Noble Truths to understand what he's talking about in more detail. So here in the Eightfold Path, he gives four things to clean up. And these are things that would be very wise for you to choose to clean up as part of your practice. Lying, you know, this is telling falsehoods because if you tell falsehoods, then people aren't going to be able to trust you and you're going to find your personal and professional relationships will struggle. If you slander, which is like destroying people's reputation, both publicly or privately, like through gossip and things like this, then those people are going to find out and they're going to oftentimes come and try to cause problems for you. Or as you're slandering and gossiping about people, those people who you're slandering and gossiping to, they're going to get used to you slandering and gossiping all the time and they're going to go out and slander and gossip about you. If you refrain from harsh speech, this is being aggressive and hostile and bitter in your speech. If you're doing that, then people are going to be turned off by you if you have harsh speech. And then frivolous speech, this is also called idle chatter. This is where the mind has craving to just yada, 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 yada. If you've ever done that before, or if you've ever had somebody do that, you know it's like, oh my goodness, there's so much this person's talking about, and none of it is beneficial. It's just yada, 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 yada. This is the mind craving, an overactive mind. So here with the Eightfold Path, with right speech, you can see what the Buddha is teaching. You can learn this, and then you can reflect on it. And you can be like, yeah, when I've lied in the past, it caused unwholesome outcomes. Or if you've slandered or gossiped, or if you've had harsh speech and maybe relationships got damaged and destroyed and they ended, or if you've ever had frivolous speech or been around people that had frivolous speech, then you know what that feels like. So you can reflect on that and see like, wow, the Buddha is actually telling the truth here. This would be unwise for me to speak in this way. And then you start practicing this where now you choose to no longer lie, slander or gossip, up, have harsh speech or have frivolous speech. And when you're training your mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment through breathing mindfulness, meditation, and generosity, like what we talked about last week, then you'll find it easier and easier for you to pull back the mind and restrain the mind. Because oftentimes we lie because we have selfish desires and we're trying to get something that we want. Or we're slandering and we're trying to diminish others because of our ego and we want certain things. We want to look great in the world. Or we have harsh speech because our cravings aren't getting met. And when we experience those painful feelings, we falsely attribute it to other people and we become bitter and harsh and aggressive towards them because we perceive them as the problem when they're not really the problem. Or we have that frivolous speech due to the cravings in the mind. So when we're knocking down craving, desire, attachment, it becomes much easier to speak with right speech and eliminate these four things. So if you're having challenges with any of these four things, you can actually work on those first as a first level or first layer of understanding of right speech. 
But then, as you would like to really hone your speech more and more, you look at some of the other teachings the Buddha has around right speech. And this one I'm sharing here, which is called Five Factors of Well-Spoken Speech. This is the next level of detail that the Buddha is providing around speech, that if you understand this and you dial this in closer and closer, you can see that your relationships, both personally and professionally, will blossom because you're not causing harm through your speech. So with those intentions of right intention, where you're not interested in harming other beings, now you can decide, like, let my intentions now motivate my speech. Because here in the five factors of well-spoken speech, the Buddha says, monks, possessing five factors, speech is well-spoken, not badly spoken. It is blameless and beyond reproach or disapproval by the wise. What five? One, it is spoken at the proper time. Two, what is said is true. Three, it is spoken gently. Four, what is said is beneficial. Five, it is spoken with a mind of loving kindness. Possessing these five factors, speech is well spoken, not badly spoken. It is blameless and beyond reproach by the wise. So here you can see he's not giving you commandments or rules or anything like that. He's providing you guidance that would be wise decisions for you to make related to your speech. And now let's go through each one of these so you can understand them. I describe them in a lot of detail in the book, but let me just kind of help you a bit with these. What he's talking about with the proper time is if you're interrupting other people, this isn't going to produce wholesome results for you. People are going to get irritated and annoyed. Of course, they're causing the irritation themselves, but you're creating conditions in which their mind can get irritated. You know that when people interrupt you, you don't like it. So if you went around interrupting people all the time, you would find that you would have difficulties in your relationships. The other aspect of proper time is based on your mind and the condition of your mind. If you're angered or frustrated or irritated or having any of these other discontent feelings, that's not the proper time for you to talk. Because when your mind is angered and frustrated, the only thing that's going to be coming out is anger and frustration in your words. And now you're going to be damaging your relationships. So if you restrain your mind and choose to not talk when your mind's angered and frustrated, now you can improve your moral conduct because now you're functioning in a way that's not causing harm to others. And then the third aspect of proper time is you can actually check in with another person to make sure it's the right time for them to speak. Let's say you got a bill in the mail and you realize that you forgot to pay your rent. And in three more days, you're going to incur a late fee of $300 or something like this. And say your roommate or your partner comes home from work and you jump on them right away. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness, we're going to get a $300 penalty if we don't pay this. This is the wrong time to talk. Their mind isn't prepared to have this conversation when they just walked in the door from a hard day at work. Let them come in, let them get some water, have some food, take off their shoes, their jacket, rest. Let them kind of acclimate to this new environment that they just transitioned from work to home. And now, 15 minutes later, 20 minutes later, 30 minutes later, this might be a better time for you to talk about something that important. Whereas if you jumped on this person right away as soon as they came home, it could cause difficulties in your life. It could cause a challenge in your relationships and in your conversation that you're about to have. So you might even decide to check in with this person 
and say, you know, how's your day gone today? You know, what's been transpiring at work? You know, how did things go? Is this a good time to talk about something that's important? You know, you can ask these kind of questions. And then if you're not craving to hurry up and talk about this thing, then you can wait. Whether it's today or it's tomorrow, it doesn't really matter, right? If it's as soon as they walk in the door or it's 30 minutes later, it's not going to change the fact that you need to pay this bill within three days. But oftentimes when there's craving in the mind and there's worry and anxiety, the mind is uncalm, it's shaken up. You might have this craving to hurry up and jump on this person and talk to them right away. But instead, what you would like to do is be sure it's the proper time. Make sure that you're not interrupting individuals. Make sure that your mind is in a calm and peaceful condition, that you're not talking through anger and frustration and other discontent feelings, and make sure that the person you're talking with, that their mind is in the right mindset in order for you to have certain conversations. Then number two is speaking what is true. It's important to speak the truth because as you speak falsehoods, people are going to discover those and people are going to have difficulties having relationships with you, both personally and professionally, if you're lying. Not only that, but if you're lying and telling different stories to different people, your mind is going to be overactive, trying to figure out what did I tell one person? What did I tell another person? Your mind is not going to be able to get to this peace and this joy because it's going to be overactive, constantly trying to figure out what you told one person or another. So by speaking the truth, your mind can be at ease because you're just always speaking the truth and what you know to be true. Speaking gently relates to our tone, our tempo, and our word choice. Based on our tone, our tempo, and our word choice, people are going to feel that our words are either gentle or they're harsh. And if we're speaking harsh, people aren't going to necessarily like that. So what you would like to do is look at your tone, your tempo, and your word choice. And I describe this in the book in a lot of detail to help you understand how to ensure that you're speaking in a gentle way. And this will help produce better results for you in your relationships. Beneficial is all about having purposeful speech. Whereas if you have frivolous speech or idle chatter, it's not purposeful. You're not going to be able to be very influential in your speech and in the way that you communicate with people. So it's very wise to ensure that you're speaking beneficially, purposefully, that there's a point to what you're saying rather than just rambling chit chat about this thing or that thing. And there's really no point behind what it is that you're discussing. So ensure that when you're talking, there's benefit. Now, if you're just getting to know people and, you know, where are you from? How old are you? These kind of things. Of course, there's a benefit behind that because you're getting to know this person. But what you're looking to avoid is the rambling chit chat that there's no point whatsoever. Maybe it's self-absorbed. Maybe you're just talking about yourself rather than having a conversation where it's beneficial to multiple people who are involved in the conversation. And then the fifth one is with a mind of loving kindness. This is that genuine interest in seeing others be well, having active goodwill. The opposite of this might be like inner hate. If you had hate or sarcasm like this towards others, if you had ill will towards others, this is going to come out in your speech. And now if you speak through ill will or your anger, your hatred or your sarcasm, this is going to produce unwholesome results for you.
So this is the teachings on the five factors of well-spoken speech. This is the learning part. And I suggest that you look at chapter five and read this in more detail. But even with the little bit that you've learned so far, you can start reflecting on this and you can start looking back over your life and you can see conversations that haven't gone well for you. You can see that either you and or the other person wasn't practicing one or more of these five factors. So you can look at conversations that exploded or went in an unwholesome direction, and you can see that you either weren't speaking at the right time, you either weren't speaking the truth, you either weren't speaking gentle, you weren't speaking beneficial, or you weren't speaking with a mind of loving kindness, and therefore it resulted in unwholesome results for you. And that's how you independently verify that the Buddhist teaching is true. And then you also look at situations where you had wholesome outcomes. Even though you didn't necessarily know these five factors at that time, you can look back over those conversations and be like, yep, 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 I was practicing these and so was the other person. That's why the conversations have always gone well. And this is where you now reflecting on that, you've independently verified it. Now you start moving it into practice where you start dialing this in closer and closer. And each one of your relationships, whether it's personal or professional, you start practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech more and more clearly, more and more profoundly, more and more directly. When I was working on this myself, when I would wake up in the morning and I knew I was interested in working on right speech, I would look at the books and I would remind myself of these five factors. And then I would go out into the world and I would have my conversations. And then if something went well, I would look at the book and make sure I was practicing all five factors to confirm that the Buddhist teachings are true. Or if a conversation didn't go well in that day, I would look at the book and I was like, yep, there it is. I wasn't speaking gentle or I wasn't speaking with a mind of loving kindness or I wasn't speaking at the right time. And that's how I independently confirm this. So you can actually use the book or I have posters and images that you can download or you can go print and then you can get this refresh of the five factors of well-spoken speech and keep this in your mind as you're going about your day. If you have an office at work, you can print this out and put it in your office and remind yourself, or you can put this on your phone, take a screenshot of this or what have you, and remind yourself of this regularly throughout your weeks. And that way you can bring your practice up more and more closely to this. Because when you're not practicing this, you're not going to experience great results in your life. Essentially what you're doing is you're working to establish what we call barami. This is a Thai word. It's part of Thai culture. This word barami, it means the one who people listen to. When you're practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech, you'll establish barami, the one who people listen to. You'll be more influential in your personal and professional relationships. And the way that you establish barami, or the one who people listen to, is by practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech. And now, more and more, people get used to you speaking in a way that doesn't cause harm to others. And now they're going to be more and more interested in talking to you or asking for your advice. Or when you do need to speak with your children or your life partner or your parents or your coworkers or your boss, they're going to get more and more used to you speaking in this very wholesome way, this very wise way. And now you'll find that you'll have more influence in your relationships because you've established me. Here in Thai villages, 
they usually will have certain elders in the community that are very well known amongst the villagers that these people are very successful in life. Not necessarily financially successful. Oftentimes that's what we think about with success. Here in Thailand, when they think about success, they think about someone with a peaceful mind, with a calm mind, with a joyful mind, someone who has good relationships with everyone around them. This is success. Just because you have a lot of money doesn't mean that you're necessarily successful in life. It means you have a lot of money, but it doesn't mean that you're necessarily a polite, kind, friendly, and respectful person, right? Of course, there are wealthy people who are polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, but wealth by itself isn't an indication of success in life. Instead, if you can be peaceful and joyful and harmonious in your relationships, that's what determines if you're successful in life or not, if you can have harmonious relationships. So these elders in the Thai villages, these are people that are relied on and people go to them and ask for advice and ask for help because they're very successful in their life and conducting themselves very successfully with harmonious relationships. And now people go to them and ask for help and ask for guidance. So you can establish this barami by improving the way that you function through the way that you speak. During the lifetime of the Buddha, all there was was speech, right? That's all they actually had was speech. But if I was you, I would consider this to be right communication. Because nowadays we have text messaging, we have chat, we have Facebook posts or social media posts, we have emails, we have spoken speech and things like this. If you were speaking with the five factors of well-spoken speech, but your emails and text chat wasn't with the five factors of well-spoken speech, you're gonna still have difficulties and challenges in your life. So you would like to improve your communication where in all parts of your communication, whether it's social media posts or text messaging or speaking or emails that you use the five factors of well-spoken speech. Because you could go into a job interview and speak with the five factors of well-spoken speech and everybody just absolutely adores you at that job interview. But if they looked at your social media and they see that you're saying some really harsh and aggressive things, then you might struggle to actually acquire that job. So what this guidance that the Buddha is giving you, it's not rules, it's not commandments, it's not doubt shall not do this. It's, hey, if you would like to have a better way of life and you would like to create harmonious relationships, here's the guidance on this natural law of gamma, of cause and effect. And if you speak in this way, you'll find better results when you're talking with others. Then the other part that I have as part of our right speech is something that I shared in volume one around right speech, which if you are kind of blanking on the five factors of well-spoken speech as you're bringing your practice up more and more to the five factors of well-spoken speech, if you're having difficulties at all, at least if you can think about being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, this will help you a lot. Just remember that, polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. And if you can practice that in your relationships through all forms of communication, then you can be very successful in the way that you interact with others. Not having gossip or harsh language or false speech with lies or deceit or slander. Now, of course, if you're working on this yourself and improving your own moral conduct, that's what you're choosing to put out in the world. 
But there's other people who aren't necessarily learning these teachings and they may be speaking to you harsh or aggressive or with hate. And the, what the Buddha teaches on this is to reside unaffected, that when other people might choose to speak with you in an unkind way, to reside unaffected. It doesn't mean that you need to continue to be around these people, but you shouldn't allow your mind to get affected by that. If you have craving, desire, attachment, where you're longing and yearning and you're wanting and expecting every single person in your life to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, even though that's the way you're choosing to function, if you have craving or wanting or expectations for this, you're going to be discontent because of the universal truth of impermanence. Not every single person is going to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful with you. It's just not possible in this impermanent world. So what you're looking to do is cultivate this practice for yourself where you're now practicing in this way with your life partner, your children, your parents, your friends, your relatives, your coworkers. But of course, there's going to be people in your life that might choose to be impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful. And where you see that, just understand that that's impermanence, have concern for their misfortune, that it's unfortunate that they're choosing to function this way, but it's their choice to do that. You're not causing them to be impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful. If you've brought your practice up to the five factors of well-spoken speech, and now you're practicing in wholesome way, you can reside at ease because when other people are choosing to be harsh and aggressive, you know that you're not causing that. It's them that's causing that themselves based on their own decisions and the decisions that they're making. So you can read more about right speech or right communication in chapter five, but this is to a certain level of detail that I might teach in class. And now what I'll do is I'll open up to questions to see what areas you guys would like to dive deeper into. Because the detail that's in the book, I can only teach to a certain level of detail in classes because the vast majority of the details in the book. And then I open up the questions to allow you guys to go deeper into any particular aspect of this that you'd like. You can put your questions into YouTube or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions that you like. Thank you, Teacher David. Yes, it looks like we have a few questions. Um, Tonka has her hand raised. Thank you, Chrissy. If we can go back to Kama, Joe Neal has a question there. Uh, I have confusion on the action and result theory. It is thought that another cannot bring you discontentedness or feelings. The drunk driver that hits you and causes injury, his action is your result? Question mark. This is not actually true. What you're describing is cause and effect. That even though you might feel right now or you might think in your mind that somebody else is causing the discontentedness, it's actually the results of your decisions. That if you have a craving for this body to be permanently healthy, and now when it's unhealthy, your mind is going to be discontent in that situation. And even somebody hitting you as a drunk driver, I'm not saying that you deserve to be hit by a drunk driver or anything like that, but it's cause and effect, it's action and result. You didn't ask to be hit by the drunk driver, but the cause is that you were in a car, you chose to get into a car, you chose to drive down the road. And if you're choosing to drive at a certain time or what have you, you're choosing to drive, right? And the effect is that 
there's the potential that you're going to get into a car accident and other people around you might be drunk, particularly if you're going out, you know, New Year's Eve at 2 a.m. in the morning or midnight. You know, these are times where we know that there's potentially a lot of people who are intoxicated on the road. So if we are in a car driving and we get hit by a, a drunk driver, we didn't ask to be hit, but it is a result of our decisions. It's not that we are destined to get hit by this drunk driver, but we chose to get in the car, we chose to drive down the street, and this is just a result of decisions, right? It's not that you deserve it, it's just that it's a cause and effect. If you weren't driving, you wouldn't have gotten hit, right? So oftentimes we view these things like they're out of our control or you know, it just happens by happenstance. Oftentimes we think about the natural law of gamma as like we're being punished or this is destined to happen to us. But you just see this sequence of events that I chose to get in the car, I chose to drive down the street, I chose to stop at this light. Okay, that's all your choices. But now perhaps there's an environment where there's a lot of people who are drunk. Maybe you're out at 2 a.m. in the morning, for example. These are decisions that we make that can potentially lead to certain harms. And then the same thing with the discontentedness. It sounds like you haven't fully learned or understood the Four Noble Truths. You're going to need to go back and look at the Four Noble Truths so that you understand that it's craving, desire, attachment that is causing any discontentedness in the mind. Even in a situation where there's been an accident, if the body is in pain and your mind is angry or frustrated or irritated about that, this is because of craving, desire, attachment. It's not being caused by somebody else. The situation involved multiple people's decisions. It involved your decisions and this drunk driver's decisions, but it's your decision to drive and go out in the car and do these kind of things. So as you train your mind and you understand that it's craving, desire, attachment that is causing discontentedness, then you'll understand that any time that you're experiencing discontentedness is coming from your own mind. But you're going to need to deeply understand the Four Noble Truths and establish right view to be able to see that clearly. So you learn, you reflect, independently verify, and then you practice and you look at situations that you've experienced and you can see that in every single situation where your mind is discontent, there's something that you're craving. You can't experience discontentedness if the mind doesn't have craving. So for example, at this point in my life, if I was involved in an accident, and actually I was involved in an accident in 2019, I had a motorbike accident and I, I hit the pavement and I couldn't move the arm and I got rushed to the hospital, I had a cracked rib. And in that situation, they actually had to do a urinalysis on me because they thought that I was high. They thought I was drunk because I was so cheerful and I was peaceful and joyful. The nurses had me do a urinalysis. So you can actually get into an accident and still maintain your peacefulness and your joy if you don't have craving. If the mind has been trained to understand that this body isn't going to be permanently healthy, that this body is impermanent, even in a situation where there's an injury, then you can still maintain your peacefulness and joy. Thank you, sir. Let's go to Joe. He has his hand raised on Zoom. Hi. Um, I had a question about sarcasm. I, I enjoy sarcasm. I guess I use it for, you know, from time to time, not necessarily harshly, but, you know, I do, I guess, you, yeah, I just use sarcasm and I was wondering if you just get rid of it altogether or 
or not, or if it's okay sometimes to maybe bring levity to a situation or something like that. Do you have an example, Joe, that you can give me? Not in mind. Not in mind. Okay. So I can't speak on your behalf, but I know that in the past when I used to be sarcastic, there was usually some amount of kind of like twinging people's screws and kind of like, you know, trying to twist some buttons and push some buttons. That kind of thing isn't going to go over well because when we're sarcastic, other people may interpret our words in a way that we didn't mean it. And this is going to cause us difficulties. It would be wise to get rid of sarcasm. But it doesn't mean we can't joke. We can surely joke and have fun and enjoy life. But when we start trying to twist screws and kind of trying to be sarcastic in kind of a way that is either diminishing or degrading or trying to rile people up or something like this, this is the kind of thing that you would like to get rid of. And if your words have the potential of being interpreted in an unfavorable way, due to sarcasm, you know, that's another reason why you'd be interested to get rid of it. Okay, thank you, sir. And Marcy also has her hand raised. I'm sorry, my video won't come up. I'm not sure why, but that's okay. Thank you, Chrissy. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, Teacher David, I have been trying to practice when someone has, you know, harsh speech towards me, um, and I just, you know, try to arise, you know, the concern for their, um, you know, well-being and stuff, but sometimes I get frozen in the spot and I don't know what to physically do with my body. Should I like turn and walk away? Should I, you know, uh, you know, provide some, you know, guidance to that moment, but physically, what do I do with my body? I know what goes on in my mind, but what do I physically do with my body? Each situation is going to be different, Marcy. I wouldn't be able to give you one permanent answer because there's so many different variables involved. You need to decide for yourself. If you're frozen in a situation, you're going to have to figure out, like, what do I do here? What am I to do? You know, I'd have to have a couple of different examples and probably provide you a couple of different options of things you could potentially do. But you shouldn't stay fixed to that because you need to have the freedom to make your own wise decision in the present moment. As long as you're not harming with your physical body, there's no problem, right? That's what we're gonna talk about in right action. Here we're talking about right speech, but as long as you're not harming with the body, you're not doing anything harmful. If someone um, comes and says, you know, why are you so stupid? And at that point, at that point, like I personally want to just stop interaction, stop communication, and just turn around and walk away, not provide any kind of like, you know, verbal, you know, rhetoric back to them or anything. Is that in that situation, is that an appropriate um, physical bodily response by just turning around and walking away? That would be wise because somebody who's talking like that, there's just absolutely nothing you're going to say that's going to improve the situation. They're choosing to speak in that unwise way, being harsh and aggressive and unkind. And it doesn't matter what you say, their mind has already got hatred in there. You're not going to be able to change that. And your job isn't to change that. But when the person has ego in their mind, they might feel like they want to fight or they want to be harsh and aggressive back. And this doesn't result in anything wholesome. So in that situation, if somebody said that to me, I might choose to walk away. 
you know, I've been in other situations where when I first started wearing these white clothes, I was sitting at a temple one time teaching and there was this other person who was very aggressive and very hostile towards me. And he started yelling and hollering at me for wearing white clothes. Uh, and then I just sat there and I just smiled. I just looked him in the eye and smiled. I didn't do anything. He said, uh, you know, don't give me that peaceful stuff. Don't be do all that calm stuff. I'm sick and tired of that calm stuff. And I just smiled. And then eventually I just got up and, you know, walked away. So there's nothing for me to say in that situation where somebody's aggressive and hostile just because of the color of clothes that I'm wearing. So if somebody comes up to you and says, you know, you're stupid or diminishing like that, usually the best thing to do is just to walk away. If you're at work and like, say you're a cashier and it's a customer that says that, you may or may not be able to walk away. You might need to just stand there and smile and be unaffected. Or if there is ability for you to walk away, that might be a way for you to just diffuse the situation, deescalate it and allow them to move on. And then you can come back a few minutes later and take your next customer. And teacher, the last part of my question is, so, um, you know, someone says something that's really harsh and I turned around and I turned and I said, wow, that was really harsh. Is that my craving pointing that out to them? Not necessarily. In certain roles and certain settings, we might be in a place that we need to do that, right? Like say if it was your son or your daughter and, and they said something like that, you might turn around and say like, wow, that was really harsh. You know, you're just kind of helping them see it for themselves. If it's a complete stranger, somebody that you have no responsibility to share wisdom with or train, you might choose to not say that if you don't know this person very well and it could erupt into a problem. But in some situations, maybe like a coworker, someone who trusts you and sees you as somebody that can be helpful for them, maybe you do have the ability to say something like that to help somebody and they might appreciate it. So this is where each individual needs to reside in the present moment. You need to understand the variables and your roles and then make a wise decision in the moment. This is where the Buddha doesn't give us a decision tree and says, if somebody says this, do that, right? If somebody does this, do that, because that would be one permanent answer for each situation. Instead, what he's doing is he's providing you this guidance, this wisdom. And now with your wisdom, and you observant in the present moment of what's going on around you, now you'll make a wise decision in this situation and each situation is going to be a bit different. So you're going to need to reside in the present moment, know your relationship, know your role, know what's going on around you, and then decide whether it's wise for you to say something like that or not. It doesn't necessarily mean that a comment like that is coming from craving. It could just be that you're trying to help somebody, but you need to understand that not everybody's interested in your help. And sometimes, it can be unwise to try to help somebody because their ego can arise and then come over the top of you and it can result in all kinds of difficulties. So that's where understanding your role can be very helpful. Thank you very much, Teacher David. Most beneficial. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. And then also sometimes in situations like that, Marcy, instead of sometimes saying, wow, that was harsh, like pointing the finger at the person, this can be perceived as judgment. You can say, oh, wow, that's something that I would have not said. So you can focus it on yourself. You know, this is a way to, to keep it focused on you. It's like, wow, that's interesting. I wouldn't have said something like that. This is a way that you keep it focused on yourself. It's not judgmental. You're not pointing to them. And there's less likelihood that their ego will arise in that situation. Thank you for that added piece of information. That was very good. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. And we have a 
we have a few more questions on Zoom. Um, I'm not sure if I'm saying the name right. So if I'm saying it wrong, feel free to correct me. It's David or David, maybe. Um, what about to tell a lie for the benefit, lie for benefit of another person? Example, very extreme. To not tell to one person that his wife go with another man. Obviously, he doesn't have, have any suspect about her. Yeah, it's never wise to tell a lie. There's no such thing as a white lie or a harmless lie. There's no such thing as this. We've oftentimes have been taught that in various settings that it's wise to lie and not tell the truth. But as you do that, it's just going to cause harm. If I knew that a friend of mine's wife was cheating on him, it's not my place to go tell him that his wife is cheating on him. That's something that they need to sort out because oftentimes because of wrong view, if I went and told him this, this is gossip, and now he's gonna experience painful feelings and he's gonna attribute it to me, and now it's gonna cause problems in our relationship. But if this person came to me and said, hey, there's the rumor on the street that my wife's cheating on me. Do you know if my wife's cheating on me? Even if I know that she's cheating on him, I'm gonna say, you know, Bob, this is something that you should look at closely yourself. I'm not in a place to share that type of information with you, but if I was you, I would keep your eyes wide open and start looking around very closely so that you can determine the truth for yourself, right? So that way he can look in his own situation. And I'm not putting myself in a lie. I haven't said, I don't know. I haven't said, you know, anything like that. I'm just advising him to look deeply because I'm interested in him finding the truth. Me being the messenger of the truth, oftentimes the messenger gets shot, right? So it's better to not be a messenger in that particular situation. In other lighter situations, say you have a partner and your partner comes out, you guys are going out on a date and they say, Hey, how do I look? Do I look great? And maybe in your mind, you feel like maybe not, right? But really what this person is looking for is they're looking for confidence. You're not there to lie to them and say, oh, you look so fabulous. Instead, you might say, well, as long as you enjoy the way you look, then that's all that matters, right? Rather than share a lie, it's better to always speak the truth. And oftentimes asking questions can ensure that you're not lying so if my wife came out you know i don't have judgment about what people wear i think all people are beautiful no matter what they're wearing but let's just say she came out and she's like hey uh david how do i look i would say well how do you think you look and she's like i think i look great all right then you look great right it, I, it doesn't need my personal opinion i don't need to judge her about the way she looks she wouldn't do that at this point she wouldn't ask me how she looks but you might be in a situation where somebody does ask you that. So you should never ever lie. There's no such thing as a harmless lie. There's no such thing as a white lie. Get in the habit of just always telling the truth. And you know, one of the guiding principles that I learned growing up, this isn't a part of the Buddhist teachings. This is part of grandma's teachings. She used to always say, if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. I'm sure you guys have heard this too from your mothers or your dads, your grandparents or something like this. So if you don't have something good to say, just don't say anything at all. That's the best advice, the most simplest advice, but it's the five factors of well-spoken speech that is gonna teach you how to speak and do that in a harmless way. And lying isn't part of it. You should never ever put yourself in a situation where you feel like you need to lie. Thank you, Teacher David. 
Um, then Thomas has a few questions. Is it good to speak about Dharma in your course group or community instead of outside Sangha, well-established Buddhism community? If yes, how it is looked in your teaching program and community in daily wisdom learning program? Let's take this one offline. We can either talk about it at the end if we have time, or Thomas, if you would like to post that into the Facebook group, let's talk about it there. For the next few classes, I usually like to just really stay on target of what it is that we're talking about in this particular topic. That would be a good question on like a Wednesday where we have open questions, or if you would like to put it in the Facebook group, I could answer it there for you. Okay, thank you. And then he has another question. Um, is it about right speech or anything we talked about today? Appropriate thoughts and imagination. Yeah, I think this is something we can talk about later. Thomas, if you could post those into okay. the Facebook group or ask those on a Wednesday, I think that would probably be a lot better because I would like to stay focused and targeted because there's a lot to talk about in each one of these steps. And I would like to be sure that we spend our time focused on those. Okay, thank you, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you, Thomas, for asking questions and being interested to learn. Just would like to keep things more focused in our conversations with these deep topics that we're talking about. Yes, and that appears to be all the questions that we have at this time. Okay, so let's look at right action then. This is the fourth step of the Eightfold Path. Here, the words of the Buddha are, In what monks is right action? Refraining from taking life refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. This is called right action. So here the Buddha is just talking about three individual bodily actions that can cause harm and significant harm so that you can clean up your moral conduct around bodily actions so that you're not causing harm through your bodily actions. But notice he doesn't say like, don't walk up to someone and punch him in the face, right? He doesn't say that because if you understand right action, then you understand that that would be unwise to do that. He doesn't say, you know, don't go down the aisle of an airplane and drag your suitcase and run over people's feet and hit their knees because there was no airplanes or suitcases during his life, right? But if you understand right action, that it's all about causing harm through our bodily actions, then you would be wise about how you move about the world with your bodily actions that you're not causing harm. Here, he's just giving you three major ones that can cause significant harm so that you clean that up. Because taking life where you're killing other beings, this is going to cause you harm. Other beings are going to be interested in killing you. Or if you're stealing and taking things that don't belong to you, then again, people are going to be interested in causing harm because you're causing harm to them because they had to work really hard to get those things and they are meaningful in their life. And if we steal them, then they're not going to have those available resources to them to conduct their life and accomplish the things they need to accomplish. So we should ensure that we're not taking things from people. And then there's this refraining from sexual misconduct. All three of these are part of the five precepts, which is something we're going to study in chapter seven. And you'll see the words of the Buddha in much more detail, where he explains these in a very illuminating detail and helps you to understand these in more detail. Here, this is like a, once again, teaching to a certain level of detail. And then essentially he's pointing to the five precepts and helping you see more clarity through the five precepts where he explains something like sexual misconduct in detail. And we're going to be exploring that in chapter seven. 
as a heads up, what sexual misconduct is, is it's causing harm through the way that we choose to have sex. If we were to have multiple partners at one time, this is going to cause harm. We can experience difficulties in our life like sexually transmitted diseases. We can even get beat up or murdered. We can have these kind of things happen to us when we're going outside of our relationships or if we're breaking up other people's relationships, even if we're single and somebody else has a relationship, we can actually get murdered in these situations. People have gotten murdered. If you're having sex with minors, if you're having sex without consent, like if you were raping somebody, he talks about these kind of things and sexual misconduct. So you'll get to see that and explore that in chapter seven. And you can go look at that if you like at any time, but I'll be discussing it during chapter seven. And also as a heads up, understand that when he talks about sexual misconduct, he doesn't talk about same gender relationships. Two women or two men choosing to have sex with each other. If they're in a loyal, consenting relationship, they're loving each other, they're faithful to each other, they're having sex with each other, they're not causing harm to anybody else. Two men or two women, they're in a loving, consenting relationship. The Buddha understood this 2,500 years ago. There's people today that don't understand this. More and more people are starting to understand this, but this is how awake, this is how wise this individual was 2,500 years ago. That even just 50 years ago, if somebody would have stood up and said what I just said, that there's no harm in two women or two men having sex with each other because they're not harming another being. They're choosing to have a loving, consenting, loyal relationship with each other. They're not causing harm to any other people. If somebody said this 50 years ago, you know, there would be potentially a lot of difficulties in that situation. But here is an individual, a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha, 2,500 years ago that understood this. Because he observed in his life that there were same gender relationships. He actually talks about people who are females who don't identify as being female and males who don't identify as being male, but he doesn't teach anything about it. He just observes it and he mentions to his students that, hey, this is something that you're going to see. But there's nothing wrong with that if you understand the not every single male is going to be interested in having sex with a female. If that was true, then the universal truth of impermanence wouldn't be true. Or if every female was interested in having sex with a male, then that would be permanence. But we know we live in an impermanent world, so it's not possible for every male or every female to be interested in having sex with the opposite gender. The problem that we experience in the world is that there are certain people who have craving that they want permanence. So then when they don't get what they want, then their anger and their hatred arises. So if you know people who are in same gender relationships, or if you're in a same gender relationship, or you might choose to be in a same gender relationship at some point in the future, you're not having sexual misconduct. What sexual misconduct is about is causing harm to beings through our conduct and the way that we have sex. So two loving, consenting adults aren't actually harming each other. They're choosing, two loving, consenting adults are choosing to have a sexual relationship with each other. So here in the teachings of the Buddha, when he talks about right action, he's giving you these three significant things that you could be causing harm through your bodily actions, and therefore harm is gonna to come to you. But there's others as well. As you learn the teachings of the Buddha, and you see what he's actually teaching throughout other parts of his teachings, 
you will see that when he talks about substances that cause heedlessness, where you're ingesting substances, this is causing harm to your own mind. Or if you were gambling, this is also causing harm where you're craving to make money and now maybe you lose your money and you can't sustain your life with your basic resources like food, water, clothing, shelter, medical care, and things like this. So there's other bodily actions that can be harmful. But if you understand what right action is all about, about not causing harm through your bodily actions, then you can practice this one closely. What questions do you guys have on right action? It does not appear there are any questions at this time. Okay, yeah, this one's pretty straightforward, right? So now let's talk about right livelihood. First, let's describe what a livelihood is. A livelihood is how you choose to sustain your life in the world. So your occupation, or if you're a student, or if you're a retired person, or if you're a stay-at-home mom or dad or something like this, this is essentially your livelihood. This is what you're choosing to do in order to sustain your life. And here are the words of the Buddha. I'll read them to you. They're very general because in other parts of his teachings, he goes into a lot of detail about what right livelihood is because he wouldn't be able to explain it all in the Eightfold Path. So here, all he says is, in what monks is right livelihood? Here, monks, the noble disciple, having given up wrong livelihood, keeps himself by right livelihood. And then in other parts of his teachings, he fully expands what right livelihood is. And here I'll teach you kind of a beginning understanding of right livelihood. And then if you're interested in changing your job or getting a new job or changing your livelihood, I would direct you to volume 12, chapter 14 of the book series that I share. Because in there, the Buddha lays out right livelihood in its entirety. So that's volume 12, chapter 14. You'll see it in its entirety. But here, let me just introduce you to a couple aspects of right livelihood to ensure that you purify your livelihood and you hone in and ensure that you're not causing harm to other beings through the way that you choose to sustain your life. Here, the Buddha says, monks, a household practitioner should not engage in these five trades. Now remember, this is guidance, right? This is helping you to see certain harms that you would cause in the world, and now this harm could come back to you. What five? Business and weapons, business and living beings, business and meat, business and substances that cause heedlessness, and business and poisons. A household practitioner should not engage in these five trades. Because if we have business and weapons, living beings, meat, substances that cause heedlessness or poisons, we're sustaining our life based on harm to other beings, and this is where harm can come to you. Now, when you learn this, you can now start reflecting on this and seeing the truth for yourself. Like business and weapons, there's a big case in America right now where there was a movie production, there was a weapon involved, and somebody accidentally got shot. And now there's going to be people who are criminally charged for this, right? This is part of business and weapons, right? Or business and living beings. Business and living beings are like human trafficking or slaves or having animals that are being bred and you're making your livelihood off of the womb of a dog who's constantly maybe being bred to produce puppies or a kitten or some other animal. Business in meats is that we have to kill animals in order to sell this meat, so now that's causing harm. 
or substances that cause heedlessness. You can see this truth for yourself, that if you were selling cocaine on the street corner, you could get robbed, you could get beat up, you could get murdered, you could get arrested, you could get addicted to your own substances. And this is the natural law of gamma of cause and effect or action and result. It doesn't follow the human laws because we have human laws. They're much lower level than the law of the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect. Because human laws, we've made it legal to sell alcohol, for example. And it's legal for you to go get a job at a liquor store and be a cashier at this liquor store. But if you understand the natural law of gamma, you would understand that that's very unwise to go get that job. Because now, when you put yourself in that position based on your decisions, you could get robbed, you could get murdered, you could get beaten up, these kinds of things like this. So you can actually reflect on each one of these and see that it would be unwise for you to have jobs or an occupation or sustain your life based on any of these five livelihoods. So you can reflect on this and decide whether or not your current occupation or livelihood is based on any of these five. Where you need help, again, you can reach out and get help. Then the Buddha shares other teachings around our livelihood, things like scheming or flattery, hinting, belittling, pursuing gain with gain. What scheming is, this is how we conduct our livelihood. So if I was a politician, that job isn't one of those five that the Buddha talks about. So from that standpoint, your livelihood is purified. But if I was corrupt as a politician or as a police officer or something like this, if I was scheming, this is going to cause harm and this is going to damage my reputation and now I'm going to find it to be a struggle to perform this livelihood. So not only do we need to make sure we're not performing one of those five wrong livelihoods, but we need to be sure that we're looking at how we're conducting ourselves in our livelihood. What flattery is, is if you were insincere about your compliments towards your customers or coworkers or things like this, people can feel that insincerity that you're just trying to flatter them in order to sell them a product. And this is not going to be a wholesome livelihood. Hinting is being like unclear about your project. Say you and a coworker was working on a project and you were kind of hinting that they weren't doing a good job and you kind of have this in a window. Maybe you're even belittling them at different times. This would be unwise in your livelihood because it's going to produce an environment that is hostile. Or if you have competitors in your workforce and you're belittling or slandering your competitors. This is going to look really bad for your reputation and it's going to inhibit you from being successful in your own livelihood. Pursuing gain with gain, this is just having a job for profit's sake where you're just going there to collect a paycheck. And if you've ever had that kind of job, you were probably quite miserable during that time where you were just showing up to work, collecting a paycheck. You didn't really have any enthusiasm or motivation to perform this role but instead you were just showing up to a job to collect a paycheck. So if you're just doing a job or selling a product or service just for profit's sake, and you don't feel like it's really meaningful work, you're gonna be quite miserable in that job. You're not gonna be able to experience this peace and this joyful mind and this peaceful and joyful life if you're just showing up to work to collect a paycheck. Ultimately, to purify your livelihood, what you would like to get to is get to the point where whatever livelihood you're choosing to do, whether it's a certain job or a certain company, that you could do this livelihood without any payment whatsoever 
and you would be completely content with that. That you enjoy your livelihood so much that even if you didn't have any compensation whatsoever and it was possible for you to still live life, you would still do that livelihood. If you got to that point with your livelihood right now, then you're most likely practicing right livelihood. If you're not at that point now where you feel like it's such a drag to show up to work every day, if you really don't enjoy what you're doing, if you're unmotivated, if you're lacking enthusiasm in your life in terms of your livelihood, then you should look at getting closer to a right livelihood where now you can have enthusiasm and motivation about the work that you're doing, whether it's a certain product that you're selling or a certain service that you're providing, a certain company that you're working in. If it's miserable for you to show up to work every day, you're not going to be able to get to a peaceful and joyful mind. So this is something that you would need to look at. And volume 12, chapter 14 goes through all the details to help you to gain this guidance to understand how to purify your livelihood. So this is right livelihood. And now to just summarize for you before I open up to any final questions that you guys have in class is in order to understand these three aspects of moral conduct of right speech, what you would like to keep in mind is not causing harm through any of your verbal conduct or any and all communication, such as text messaging, chat, post, emails, and things like this. Your communication should be harmless. And it's the full path around right speech and those five factors of well-spoken speech that'll get you moving in the right direction to clean up your speech so that now you're not causing harm through your speech. And remember, this is all based on right view and right intention. So you're gonna need to practice that in order to then improve your speech. You can be doing all these things at one time. You don't have to master one before you do the other, but just understand that when you have those right intentions, now those intentions will come through in your speech and the way that you choose to communicate. The same thing with your right action. Ensure that you're not causing harm through your bodily conduct and the way that you conduct yourself with your body in the world. Whereas if you're getting onto a plane, possibly you might bump into somebody, but of course you're going to say, I'm sorry, I apologize, right? Whereas if you just haphazardly, you know, walk down the aisle of a plane bumping into people, or if you were at a mall and you were just haphazardly walking around bumping into people, stepping on people's feet and things like this, it's going to cause you difficulties. So be sure that you're not causing any harm through your bodily conduct and the way that you choose to perform with your actions. And then your livelihood, this is how you choose to sustain your life and the decisions you make around that. Ensure that you're not sustaining your life based on harming others. Because if you're harming others through your livelihood, you're choosing to sustain your life based on the harm of other beings. This isn't going to produce beneficial results in your life. So you would like to purify your livelihood where you're not causing harm to others and you get to the point where you're so motivated and so enthused about the work that you're doing that you could do it without any compensation and you'd be perfectly content with that. But of course, you need some kind of income or some kind of compensation to be able to conduct your life, but don't make your job about the money. Instead, make it about providing this product or this service that you know is very beneficial for the world, and you're just gonna have this livelihood that is essentially an extension of your life practice. Your life practice essentially becomes about 
not being harmful to others and being helpful in the world and living harmoniously with other beings. So if you can have a livelihood where you're helping others and you are truly enjoying the work that you're doing by selling a certain product or offering a product or service, and you know like, wow, I just really enjoy helping people with the work that I'm doing, then you're gonna have so much more enthusiasm and motivation to do that. And you can still be practicing these teachings in your livelihood as part of your profession or whatever you choose to do in the world. So this is everything that I had to share with you guys around moral conduct to this point of this introduction to this section of the Eightfold Path. I'll turn things over to all of you guys about any questions around moral conduct or anything else that you guys would like to talk about. You can put that into YouTube, into Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Thank you, sir. Um, we have a question in Zoom from EY. Is owning a restaurant business, serving meat, products, or meals considered right livelihood with respect to business with meat? And then thanks. If you're selling meat, this is business and meat. If it's a restaurant, even if you're a food server or something like this. Now, keep in mind, the vast majority of the world doesn't understand these teachings right now. And there's a lot of places in the world where these things are occurring. And it's not that you need to run out today and snap your fingers and change everything. But gradually, slowly but surely, as you learn these teachings and you understand that by selling meat, it is producing harm in the world, that it's causing animals to experience this enslavement and this miserable life, and then they're killed as part of that. And then by serving the meat, those hormones, the drugs, the toxins that are in the meat, individuals are eating that, and now their body's becoming more sick and more inflamed. There's a lot of research that shows this, that it's harmful to actually eat meat. If you're participating in that, that's something that you might decide to improve. And if you own a restaurant or you're a food server somewhere, you might choose to kind of move towards a more of a purified livelihood where you're not serving meat. And this isn't something that you need to run out and do tomorrow, but it's something that you might gradually look at and gradually transition towards because more and more of the world is realizing that we need to be plant-based eaters. And at one time, the human race were plant-based eaters. We only started eating meat out of necessity. We used to live in the forest and we used to live in trees and we used to eat plants exclusively and then we started running out of plants and then we started to observe that predators were hunting and killing animals and we organized these packs where we would run off tigers and lions and things like this and we would take over their kill and we would start eating the meat and then we started becoming so populous that we started to learn how to do organized hunting and we started hunting ourselves and killing animals ourselves and eating them and this is how we ultimately evolved to the point where we were hunting animals. But at one time, we were plant-based eaters. And you don't need to take my word for this. You don't need to take scientists' word for this. You can independently verify this for yourself by just looking at your teeth. If you look at your teeth, your teeth are fairly flat. If you look at a cow, if you look at a horse, animals who eat exclusively plants, their teeth are fairly flat because they're grinding up vegetables and they're grinding up grains and things like this. And if you look at animals who eat meat, their teeth are very sharp and very pointed because they have to bite and they have to rip and they have to tear. But our teeth, even with thousands of years of evolution, they've remained fairly flat 
because we were plant-based eaters at one time. So there's enough research now that during the lifetime of the Buddha, he explained the teachings of the natural law of gamma, but he didn't necessarily explain all the harms that we were going to experience as a result of not practicing these teachings. He just explained what the teachings are. There's a very rare situation where he explains the actual harms. But now, 2,500 years later, we can look at his teachings and we can look at what's happened and we can research and we can see that there's been studies that show that by ingesting meat, it's actually causing more sickness in our body. We can see that industrial farming is causing all kinds of problems to our environment and things like this. So these teachings that I'm sharing with you, if this is the first time you've thought about these things, that's wonderful that you're thinking about these things, but don't feel like you need to rush out and make a whole bunch of changes right away. Instead, just look at how you might choose to wisely, gradually bring your life practice closer and closer to what the Buddha taught. And that's where you'll see that there's more improvement in your life in the way that you're functioning in the world. Because as long as we're doing any of these harmful things through our moral conduct, then that harm is going to come back to us. Yes, thank you, sir. And then... Um... I received um, not a question, but a share, and the mind got a bit confused. I thought it was directed just towards me, but then I realized it was probably a statement that was intended to be shared. It's about right speech. Would you like me to share that? Sure, I can listen to it. Usually in classes, as you, as you know, I usually like to just take questions because mm -hmm. that way people can learn. But let, let's see what this person shares. Okay, I think you might be interested. Um, not a question, but a share. Um, this came from JP. I have found that in addition to my speech, I have to work on my facial expressions as my true feelings sometimes are apparent in my expressions, which may be perceived as judgment or being unkind. Yes, this is true, right? This is our bodily actions. There's the intentions, there's the speech, and then there's the actions. So our facial expressions also communicate to people as well. So as you train your mind to not have craving, desire, attachment, where something happens, you're like, you know, making one of those faces, that's because of craving, desire, attachment. But when you get rid of craving, desire, attachment, and you're not shaken up by something that is occurring, then you'll notice that you won't have those kind of facial expressions. And you'll notice that you'll have a more serene appearance on your face as you're eliminating craving, desire, attachments. And the Buddha even talks about this in his teachings, whereas as you're training your mind and getting closer and closer to enlightenment, you can see that your complexion and the serenity and the calmness in your face starts coming through more and more. And you won't have those harsh facial expressions that may communicate something different than what you're intending to communicate. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. And Tonka has her hand raised. Let's go to Tonka. Thank you, Chrissy. Uh, teacher David, I'm noticing that uh, younger generation is becoming more sensitive when it comes to speech. And uh, I'm wondering if we can go too far with gentle speech as well. For example, in universities now, we have safe places for students to go when they feel upset or stuff like that. Also at my workplace, I feel that there is a lot of sugar coating, kind of everybody is afraid not to offend someone. So I feel that we may go into uh, another uh, opposite as well. And uh, for example, with raising children, uh, uh, I'm not sure, but I feel that sometimes we, we shouldn't be uh, 
protecting them away too much and sugarcoating everything because we want to prepare them to go out into the world and be uh, uh, strong uh, people. Uh, and uh, so I was wondering uh, if you have something to share around that topic. Sure. Using gentle speech isn't to say that you're sugarcoating things, right? And remember that this path is all about the middle way. Whereas if we're harsh and aggressive and hostile, you know, that's not going to produce helpful and harmonious relationships. But if we were flattering people and just sugarcoating things, as you might say, that's not the middle way either. Instead, we can be clear, we can be direct, you know, we can talk, but we can do that in a gentle way through our word choice, our tone and our tempo. And this can be helpful. There's no interest in my mind of yelling or hollering or being harsh to my son, for example, since you mentioned children. Because if I know if I do that, when I get older, what's he going to do with me, right? Like if I'm impatient with him, if I'm unkind, if I'm impolite and disrespectful as he's growing up as a child, he's going to learn that from me. If I'm stern and I'm harsh and I'm aggressive with him, he's going to learn that from me. And then when I get older and he's taking care of me, he's going to be exactly the same way with me. That's my gamma coming back to me. But if I'm loving and kind and polite and friendly and respectful, but still being clear and direct with the things that he needs to learn, then he can be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful in our relationship together. So when I talk to my son, like he'll oftentimes I'll ask him to go get me a glass of water. If I'm sitting and eating, I might drink one glass of water and I would like a refill. So he'll go get it for me. And I'll say, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Or, you know, I really appreciate your kindness. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. And then he ends up talking to me the same way. He'll say, you know, we're going down the street or if I buy him something at 7-Eleven, he'll say, thank you, sir. You know, sometimes, of course, sometimes he'll say, thank you, daddy. You know, I love you so much. Thank you for buying me that. Oh, that's so wonderful. Or whatever he says. But every once in a while, we'll slip a sir in there so that he knows I'm being polite to him. I know he's being polite to me. He starts to learn what it means to be polite, kind, friendly, respectful. But we have this gentle speech where we're not being harsh and aggressive and hostile with each other. Even today, we were doing laundry together, and he picked up this laundry basket that was quite heavy and quite full. He puts it back down, and he's like, I need your help. And I said, oh, really? You need my help? I was like, you can't pick it up? And he's like, no, I can't. I told you, I can't pick it up. And I was like, oh, are you speaking kind of harsh to daddy? What was that? Right? So even to that level of detail where it's just like, oh, I can't pick it up. I'm just too heavy. You know, he was like a little bit complaining about it and speaking a little bit up tempo. And when I saw that, I just let him know like, hey, it's not wise to talk like that. And then he corrected it, you know, right away. So we can refine our speech where we're not talking harsh and we're also not sugarcoating things, but we can be clear and direct and honest and truthful and we can establish bother me. The thing that you're talking about with, you know, these safe places and stuff like that, you know, I'm not familiar with that in, in North America, but I know here in Thailand at my son's school, if somebody does something that is unwise, they don't punish the child and like send them to the principal's office and things like that. Each individual classroom has a little corner and there's like beanbag chairs, there are coloring books, there's little toys. And if somebody's not playing well with the group, they will ask the child to go sit down in this area 
and they'll sit there you know we might call it a timeout but there's things for them to do and then after they've been sitting there for a little while the teacher will go over there and sit down with them and say you know why is it that you're having difficulties spending time with your friends and talking harsh with your friends so it's not a punishment it's just an isolated place that's still in the classroom it's over on the side of the classroom and there's coloring books and toys and things for them to play with just give them a place to think about their actions and why they've been separated from the group. So these kind of things can be helpful to kind of gather your thoughts. Whereas if there isn't this safe place, so to speak, where you can gather your thoughts, then you might be making unwise decisions. So if somebody is in a mixed environment and a large classroom and there's maybe 20 or 30 or however many students and there's aggression or hostility going on, if they can go to a place to gather their thoughts and then re-enter into that environment and be more thoughtful about the way they interact, this can be helpful for that environment and that individual, that person. Okay, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. That appears to be all the questions we have at this time, sir. Okay, well, what I would like to do to just kind of wrap up our talk around moral conduct is to talk about how oftentimes our intentions, our speech, and our actions in the unenlightened state aren't necessarily in sync. Oftentimes you might feel like your intentions are so pure and so loving, but when you speak, it might not be coming out that way, or your bodily actions might not be coming out that way. So in addition to understanding each one of these, intention, speech, actions, and of course, livelihood, which we talked about, it's important that not only do you study them individually, but you ensure that they're in sync. Because where your speech is out of sync with your intentions, this is where problems can occur or actions, right? If your actions are out of sync with your intentions. So what the Buddha is doing here is laying down the Eightfold Path and helping you see how to have right intentions, right speech, right actions, and then also that right livelihood as well, and ensuring that all of these things are in sync. And you can see the connections that in right intention, he talks about having the intention of goodwill or loving kindness, right? Having that intention or the thought or the thinking. And then he also mentions it in his speech as well. Speaking with a mind of loving kindness is part of the five factors of well-spoken speech. So there you can see there's a connection between the intentions and your speech. And then of course, your bodily actions as well. You're not interested in harming other beings. So as you're looking at each step individually, and you're learning how to practice them individually, be sure that you're also looking at the connectiveness of them, that you would like to bring your intention, speech, and actions to the point where they're all connected and you're emanating your communication and your bodily actions, your speech, your livelihood, all of these things are emanating from this interest of not causing harm to other beings. And this is one of the reasons why you're interested in perhaps progressing to enlightenment because as long as you're causing harm to others, this harm is gonna come back to you, whether it's in this life or some future life. So the wise decision becomes, if I make unwise decisions in this life and it's only gonna produce harm and I'm going to experience that harm in this life or some future life, the wise decision is, well, let me clean this up. Let me clean up this mess. Essentially what we've been doing over the course of our life is we've been going through life, we've been shoving mud into our garden hose. We've been making unwise decisions about our intentions, our speech, our actions, and maybe our livelihood as well. So we might have relationships right now 
that are difficult, that's a struggle, that there's harshness in the relationship. And just because you're choosing to now practice right speech doesn't mean your life's going to be perfect from the second you start practicing right speech. You've made some unwise decisions in the past about your intentions, your speech, your actions, and potentially your livelihood. And now you've got to extinguish all of that. And the way that you extinguish all of that is by now learning and practicing making wise decisions around things like your moral conduct. Start cleaning up the way that you talk to your life partner. Clean up the way that you interact with your children and your coworkers and your other family members. Essentially, this garden hose that you've been putting dirt into and this mud into, you're choosing to now hook it up to the faucet and turn on the water and get fresh water moving through this garden hose. But this garden hose is going to spit mud for a while. It's not going to have clear water right from the beginning just because you chose to hook it up to the faucet. But depending on how much you turn on that water is going to determine how much of this pure water is spitting out this mud and ultimately getting to a point where you've completely cleared out this garden hose and now you've got clear water coming out the other end and you might even be able to take a drink out of it, right? But as you're bringing your practice up more and more to the ideal, it's going to spit dirty water for a while because you've made potentially some unwise decisions in the past. So as people are being harsh and aggressive with you, you choose to do something different. You can continue to do what you've done in the past and you know what the results of that is, or you can choose to do something new. And this new thing is this better way of life that the Buddha describes. And if you bring your practice up more and more to this better way of life, you're clearing out this garden hose. You're getting rid of all this mud. Where in the past, maybe your children, your life partner would talk to you in a certain way and you would be harsh or aggressive or disrespectful back. Now you choose to do something different. It's going to be challenging. You're not going to be able to snap your fingers and just do it perfectly right away. It's going to take gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. But as you do and you improve your conduct more and more, then you're cleaning up the unwholesome results of your decisions from the past. The unwise decisions when you lacked the wisdom of this natural law has produced unwholesome results. And now you're cleaning that up by choosing to gain wisdom and now make wiser choices. Now, the unwise choices that we made in the past, we're not a bad person. You're not a bad person because of the unwise decisions that you made in the past or even the unwise decisions you're going to make from this point forward because you don't fully understand the natural law of gamma yet. You're still going to make unwise decisions. You're not a bad person because of that. You're maybe making unwise decisions, but the decisions that you make in the person are two separate things. Sometimes we confuse this and we think that if somebody's making unwise decisions that they are a bad person. But this is the judgment of the mind. When there's ego in there, it's going to judge other people and you may judge yourself as being a bad person. But instead, just look at it as decisions and these decisions don't determine who you are. But what you would like to do is get to more and more wise decisions and eliminate these unwise decisions. And the way you get to wise decisions is by learning the wisdom of the Buddha. And then you learn it, you reflect on it, and you practice it, and you see the truth for yourself that it's working. So if you're making unwise decisions, and you probably will going forward, you're going to make some more unwise decisions. Don't beat yourself up about it. Just gradually work to do better and better. And as you see your children or life partner or coworkers or other people around you, making certain decisions, you might disagree with the decisions they make. 
but that doesn't make them a bad person. It just means that you disagree with their decisions. And they may be making unwise decisions, but those unwise decisions are affecting them, right? Your decisions are going to affect you. So you would like to get to the point where you've hooked up this garden hose and you turn on the water and you can flush out this mud more and more. When you're reading the book, when you're coming to class, when you're asking questions, when you're asking for personal guidance, when you're posting in the Facebook groups, when you're meditating and all of these other things, this is turning on the water more and more so that you can get more and more clean water into this garden hose and you flush it out. If you just turn it on a little bit and you just got a little trickle coming through that garden hose, it's going to take a long time to clean out this garden hose. But if, like I mentioned, you're reading the book, you're coming to class, you're asking questions, you're meditating, you may ask for some personal guidance at different times, this is turning open that faucet more and more so that you can get more and more clean water coming through this hose and clean out the mud. That's ultimately what's going to improve the condition of the mind and the condition of your life is clearing out this pollution, clearing out this mud. Now only making wise decisions gradually, slowly but surely, learning this natural law of gamma and dialing it in closer and closer. Another analogy is if you have a sound system and there's these little dials that you can tweak in order to get a better and better sound out of the sound system, that's what this eightfold path is about, is dialing this in, tweaking the sound system to get a better and better sound out of your sound system, dialing in your decisions about how you conduct yourself in the world, and now you get better and better results in your personal and professional relationships. So that's what I would leave with you as an analogy to think about what you're doing and why it's important to clean up your moral conduct. And as you see that your personal and professional relationships are improving, this is where you'll have been making the transformation to the mind and you'll see the truth for yourself that these teachings absolutely do work. Next week on Sunday, we're going to be in the third section of the Eightfold Path. This is titled Mental Discipline. This is where the teachings of the Buddha far exceed anything that you've probably learned before. We're going to be studying right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, where now you're going to learn how to intricately train the mind. So far, we've been establishing wisdom with right view and right intention. Today, we talked about moral conduct with right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Now we're going to move on to the mental discipline section and talk about right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, where you can hone the mind and you can optimize it and you can bring it into the middle where it now performs with focus, concentration, clarity of mind, and deep memory and getting the mind closer and closer to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy where the mind is enlightened and no longer experiences any discontent feelings. So we're going to be doing that on next Sunday. This Wednesday, we're going to be in the third class of our four-part series of breathing mindfulness meditation. This is a time to support, encourage, and motivate each other in our meditation. You can come to class and actually meditate together with us. And I open up to any and all questions that you like. So any kind of miscellaneous questions or even things you've thought about from Sunday to Wednesday, you can actually join for that class if you're available and you can ask those questions then. And you can also attend by replay in Facebook, YouTube, or the podcast 
podcast, you'll be able to hear the replay if you've missed that class because there's oftentimes various questions and things that are discussed that can be really helpful for your life practice. So I'd like to thank all of you once again for joining for the class. It's been wonderful to share these teachings with you. As you need help, feel free to reach out and ask for help. Improving your practice and moving closer and closer to enlightenment is the very best thing you could ever do for yourself, for those people close to you, and all of humanity. Because as you clean up your moral conduct, you're gonna be putting out less and less harm so that people around you, this is the most loving and kind and compassionate thing you could ever do for those people that are closest to you. And all of humanity is gonna be dealing with less and less harm as you clean up your life practice. So thank you for your dedication and commitment to learning and practicing these teachings. We'll see you in one of these future classes. Have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.